What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Patchy and I'm here with my co-host Dave Martinson. Dave, you gonna vote tomorrow or today, whenever people listen to this? Good thoughts, good words, good deeds, sir. Of course I'm gonna vote. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm loving all the memes on Twitter. We record on Monday, so this is uh, the day before the election, so this may be a bit of a dated conversation, but all the, I voted in 2016 versus 2018 memes, loving that. Should be interesting to see the results as they come out. Either way, do your civic duty if you're listening to this prior to the elections taking place. If not, you can do your civic duty by subscribing to Nostalgia and also going to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod and following us on all the platforms that we're on. iTunes, Stitcher, wherever people, I guess, Google Play. Give us that rating and review on iTunes. Help us out. Help us grow. We got a lot to talk about, so we're not even going to chit-chat anymore. Let's jump in to your guy. Fuck, that's delicious. Action Bronson. That's the one, dude. What a, what a guy. He released White Bronco uh, this past Friday. It's interesting because Action Bronson, I feel like I never really like love his albums, but I usually find like one or two songs and just like, ah, that song fucking banged. And like, that that's enough for me with Action Bronson. Like, the rest can be shit and I like it. And that's pretty much exactly how I felt about White Bronco as well. I, I think the, the line I wrote down was, Overall, it's it's like a classic Action Bronson album, but not a classic album, which just says everything I think you need to know about him. What was your take uh, after a couple of listens? Yeah, I agree. I think White Bronco is a solid Action Bronson project. It's uh, it definitely comes across that way. It's a short run time, right? He's kind of put he put it on Thursday, not even Friday. You know, he's kind of threw it out there. Did press like a week beforehand. Didn't really talk about that much, right? Yeah, I think there's some there's some good moments on there. Like I really like the title track. It, has the essence of what makes good action Bronson music, which is uh, funny, kind of out of nowhere bars, you know, just kind of making funny metaphors and references and rhyming shit together in a, in a unique way and just kind of being the weird personality that he is off mic on mic. You know, that's kind of his calling card. And I think this is a lot more of that. I mean, he, of course, he has good taste in production that's more uh, retro sounding, you know, Harry Fraud, freaking Crabblaters on here. And you know, there's some good songs on here, but it also doesn't, you know, oversend its welcome, which I think is nice because I think some of his projects might have got a little long in the tooth, like Mr. Wonderful and Blue Chip 7000, which are th- I still think good projects. But, you know, there, there's some songs I didn't dig on though there, but this is, you know, just kind of short and sweet, even if it's not like his best project or anything. So I was, uh, you know, I was happy with it because I kind of had those expectations going in. Yeah, I'll give those 20, 20 to 26 minute albums a listen every time. Uh, that, that's that's nothing. It's lightweight. Um, actually, I think his live band, uh, the special, the special victims unit, is what really stands out to me on this album, because they really like the songs range from very jazzy, um, and and really kind of light and airy to like songs that fucking bang. Um, like brutal has such a funky groove to it, and like the distorted guitars on that track really, I think, like push it over the top. Even if nothing about Bronson's verses really stand out. Um, what White Bronco, like you mentioned, is very like dreamy. Very jazzy influence, same with Dr. Kimball, which those would probably be my, my two favorite tracks off the album. Um, Irish Freestyle, I think, is another one that stood out to me. So, yeah, yeah, I think there's not really too much to talk about with it other than if you like Action Bronson, you'll probably like this. And if you're not into it, it's, eh, it's only 26 minutes. It's not, it doesn't cost you much. Takeoff, though, a little bit longer of an album. Right around, like, what, 38 minutes, about 40? Shorter than Quavo, though. Like 20, 20 minutes shorter. It's a big deal. And 
and a much better album than Quavo, in my opinion. For sure. Give me your first impressions of, of Takeoff's album, The Last Rocket. Yeah, so The Last Rocket's the title, and he, like, quote, has a th- rocket theme, and by that, the first song, Martian, and then the last song, Bruce Wayne, have, like, spaceship launching sounds, like NASA <laughs> shit going on at the beginning and the end. Other than yeah. that, I don't think the theme is explored at all, but at least he had a theme, and Quavo <laughs> didn't have a theme, so, you know, we're grading on a curve. That's a That's a positive for takeoff no but you know knowing the way the Migos record where they don't like write their bars down they just kind of go in in the studio and it goes off the dome right which I guess considering the hits they have is I guess kind of impressive in that regard they've made songs without really trying it sounds like but takeoff if this is him not really trying it's even better than that because I think you know there's some there's some intricate quote-unquote raps on here you know again I don't think the lyrical content's that that important but it's a step up from what Quavo's doing I think you know he tries to talk about some of his personal issues on here and you know I think this was definitely like his moment to shine as the third Migo the last one to get a Wikipedia article the one that was left off bad and bougie we all know the story and you know I I think even though it was only 40 minutes it was still too long I think there were some songs we could have cut on this but you know I thought I thought it was pretty solid and it's, it's the best work from Takeoff thus far you know I thought some of his verses on Culture 2, an album we didn't like, but he had some good verses on there. It was starting to really show, and I think this is the natural progression of that. So, you know, I just wish that the three of them could put more effort in as a group because I think through these two albums, we still know that they're all better together than they are apart. But, you know, it was pretty good. Yeah, you know, it's, it's natural with Quavo releasing an album, what, two weeks ago for us to be comparing them. Quavo, I think our biggest knock was he didn't really have anything to say. It was just a bloated, kind of listless album. Whereas this had a lot more energy, and I thought the production on this was great. I thought, even though, like you said, a couple of the songs were, eh, kind of, you know, ran the fringe, probably could have been cut. I still think a lot of it was pretty quality, and I mean, he he's definitely the most improved Migo at this point. By far. He's getting the, the MIM award at the end of the, the season at this point. You know, I think the one knock I, I would have, and it, it's it's hard because, you know, coming from a group and one with such a signature, like, when I hear, like, the signature Migo style with, you know, like, the, the takeoff, takeoff, like, in the Ad background. Like, and stuff, yeah. Yeah, it, it always kind of, like, pulls me back to, like, ah, I, I'd like to see him define himself a little bit more apart from, from Migos and find a little bit more of his own style. I'd like all of them to, but if that's always going to be their signature from when they first started so i don't see that really going away um what, what song stood out to you most off this it all kind of sounded the same to me like sonically but i, know, I guess the first song martian i kind of dug i don't know I, I didn't i didn't write any of these songs down for like my personal download list or anything you know yeah but yeah i just kind of i don't know i think i think the first the first first third i think i i like the most um and then towards the back half i started kind of like settling into the vibe more so yeah i guess that the, the first few songs i like the most yeah, I'd agree. I think She Gun Wink is probably the one that stood out most to me. Um, maybe that one will make it onto our Now Nostalgia Best of 2018 on Spotify. Go check that out. Give it a follow. Because the next album, Vince Staples FM, definitely going to have at least one track, maybe two, if that make it to this list. This one is perfect. At 22 minutes, I was like, ooh. <laughs> I-, I might listen to this twice. Nah, I-, I mean, I've listened to it a couple times through at this point. It's it maybe is my favorite rap album of the year. Vince Staples, man. I mean, I know that you've been you know, riding for Vince since he first took off. I talk a little bit about his last couple albums and then where it brings us to FM. Yeah, fuck. First, I listened to Vince Staples in 2013. 
his third mixtape, Stolen Youth, because it was produced 100% by Larry Fisherman, a.k.a. Mac Miller. And that's how I found out about him. R.I.P. R.I.P. Started going on from there, another mixtape. And then Fall 2014, his Hell Can Wait EP uh, was really good. And I was like, right, this guy's like really, really awesome. And actually, Hagler uh, produced a lot of that. And he's uh, produced some of the songs on FM that Kenny Beats didn't make. You know, from there, uh, his first album was a was a, a double disc, Summertime 06 in 2015, which was like quite a statement, you know? And it his West Coast album, you know, Shades of Kendrick, Shades of YG, but he was already very much his own guy in terms of the way he tells his stories. And then last year, we got uh, Big Fish Theory, of course, an album that we reviewed. We both liked a lot. It was on my top 10 albums 2017. And that was an album that he, a lot more experimental songs, right? Songs like, like Bag Back in the Black Panther trailer, for example. And, you know, he's had an EP or a mixtape basically every year since 2011. So he's been pretty prolific, but continuing to get better and better. And obviously, as we all know by now, his Twitter presence has really joined his rap presence very well because he's just so funny. But you also know he, like, walks his own walk and is actually really serious. So it's just... He, the way he observes things is funny like he, the way he it's so meta like the fact that he endorses sprite the way he used to give people sprite like you know metaphorically yeah. so it's, it's been really cool seeing him grow and then the fact that he went from big fish theory which i thought maybe would be a permanent step in one direction but no it comes back with fm this third album which was effectively ghost dropped he like tweeted a few days beforehand hey i'm dropping some music hey it's music with ty dollar sign j-rock and all these people and everyone's like oh wait Oh, he's serious. He's got like real music coming. And then sure enough, it's his album. And not only is it this short little album, but it's got this awesome radio theme, FM radio theme with Big Boy, you know, one of the luminaries of uh, California radio uh, woven throughout uh, great transitions. And on top of that, it's like eight eight of the tracks, I think, are produced by Kenny Beats, who's like the hottest producer of the year and incredibly versatile already as a producer. So I think that... Fuck, it's a total win and probably the best ghost drop of the year, in my opinion. But what do you think? I mean, I already said it's probably my favorite rap album of the year. I'm trying to think what what's probably up there with it. Daytona. Yeah, Daytona is probably up there. Maybe Kids See Ghosts. But, you know, it's it's really funny because, like, Vince Staples, I feel like, really Big Fish Theory came and really solidified him as an artist. And I, I was expecting him to kind of take a little bit more time to drop some music and then out of nowhere. He drops this and it, like you said it's kind of a return more to that west coast sound that he came up with and he does it so well while also mixing in these lyrics that are really funny but really dark basically exactly like his twitter like you're talking about merging that musical personality with his actual personality and how that all kind of comes together flip that around the actual personality with music personality <laughs> and um it's just as, and also to keep it like so short and concise, but still have an album that really, there's like moments that stand out. It's just so impressive. And I didn't look up. How old is he? Like 24, 25? Yeah, point? I think he's gotta be born in 93, I'm guessing. Let me check. Yeah, he's born in 93. So he just yeah. turned 25. 25. I mean, it's crazy to to think that he's probably dropped back to back top 10 albums of the year. Um I mean, the the other part about it to me is that he has these teases for Earl Sweatshirt and Tyga in there, and I I want to hear those songs. Give me the songs, <laughs> like <laughs> just the whole thing. There's so much to like about. Yeah, it. honestly, like using in Fame the Radio theme, using like track premieres as your interludes is really cool. And you also, I think you picked two made perfect two picks for it within the album. Earl Sweatshirt, 
big fan. They've been friends for a long time. Uh, they both, I think they met through Mac Miller, honestly, or in, in that circle. And Earl, we haven't had a lot of Earl music in a few years now. It's probably one of the most anticipated records we have. And teasing us with some Earl, fucking awesome. And then also yeah. Tyga, who's very of the moment right now because he's had Hot. a great comeback, which I'm very happy to see. He's making his hottest music since 2011. So two great two picks for that. But, you know, I think Kenny Beats, just to harp on that again, he did like really good on Key's album 777 from, I think, May. Key's like a, you know, he's been an Atlanta rapper for a few, handful of years now and got the best out of Key. But then Kenny Beats, if you look throughout, you just go click on it as Genius tab, you'll see he's made a lot of different beats this year. He's not like pole. Like, you know, you think of what DJ Mustard sounds like or Metro Boomin sounds like, and like they're great producers, but you know what they sound like. Kenny Beats has already shown us in one year that he can do all these kinds of things. So I think in the way like Pierre Bourne was the winner of last year, you know, on the heels of Playboy Cardi, I would say Kenny Beats solidified himself with this record as the producer of the year. So, uh, he picked a great uh, horse to attach his wagon to because Vince really brought it, like you said. So, very happy with this. It's definitely in my top ten records thus far. What was your favorite song on the album? Honestly, the first song feels like summer. I uh, yeah, it's when I first when I first put it on, as soon as I listened to it, I restarted. Feels like summer, like right away. Like Ty Dolla Sign comes in there, and it's cool because like the the features aren't credited, so you don't know when they're coming for the first time. And I thought Ty fit in fine. Then you have the radio theme coming at the end. And I thought it was really fun, energetic Vince versus. Um, I think that was maybe a criticism of him early on where sometimes he was still lyrical, still dark, still funny, but maybe not as bumping. But this is music that you can play at a party hmm. and, you know, have fun listening to, but he's not sacrificing anything lyrically. So, I, you know, I think it's a very impressive release. Was your favorite yeah, song though? My favorite so- song was definitely uh, "Fun," the the single that he dropped. Um, I was li- actually playing Two K, listening to it for the first time through, and Julianne was hanging out with me, and we both were like, like looked at each other, like, "Oh yeah!" Like we were like both bouncing to it. And I was like, "Oh yeah, listen to this one." Like at the moment that finished, I went right back to it. So that that was how I knew that was like the track for me off this. But really, the whole thing is such quality, and if you even if you aren't like familiar with Vince Staples it's it's worth the 22 minutes as like kind of an introduction but you should go back and listen to Big Big Fish Theory for sure and his EP is definitely he's just such a talented guy um and he's gonna be around for a while there's no doubt about that so again check that out Nostalgia Best of 2018 we'll have a couple songs up there from the, the albums we talked about let's jump to The Bodyguard it's insane to me that Rob Stark out of nowhere has this show that is second most watched show in the UK behind the freaking World Cup where England made it into the final four for like the first time in like a long, long time, like what, over 20 years or something like that. And this is what people are talking about, that Rob Stark is now going to be James Bond potentially off this role. It's bananas, dog. Bananas. We watched the whole series. Uh, I binged it last week. I really liked it, but there, there's lots to kind of talk about here because I think there's there's some parts about this that could have been changed. I want to, before we jump too far in though, what was your impression of the show and what do you think about Richard Madden as potentially the next Bond? Yeah, I, I want to get to Bond. Let's save okay. that. Yeah, in terms of the ratings, like just to bring that home for a second, it's the highest rated new drama in England in 10 years. And that was since Downton, Downton Abbey, Abbey yeah. came out. It was almost as watched as Meghan Markle and Harry's wedding. Like, this shit was fucking insane. I think the, 
the finale got 17 million viewers. Like it's ridiculous. It's it would, and it's a great win for linear television and traditional uh, cable and stuff, right? And it's also cool that we got this so soon because this aired started airing at the end of August over in the UK, and then Netflix quickly picked up the international distribution and we got it end of October. So that's a quite the turnaround. It didn't used to be like that. I mean, you remember how uh, like Black Mirror, the first few series when it was just an English show, not with Netflix. Like it took a while for Netflix to even pick up those rights to show it to us before they became a Netflix yeah. show, right? So it's yeah. that's one of the perks of English television becoming closer to Hollywood now as we get to see these good shows sooner and keep that conversation going. I think it's good for the, sh- the showrunners as well. Um, but yeah, I-, I dug the show. I thought it was uh, actually incredibly watchable, incredibly bingeable, and you know really engaging. Um, but yeah, Richard Madden, uh, great win for him because he's kind of been uh, trying to find that next role yeah. post-Thrones. But I think he... Uh, he definitely is going to have a lot of opportunities now, given the eyeballs on this. Yeah, so there are a couple things about this. So it starts off with the, that scene on the train with the suicide bomber. And it really pulls you in from there. Like, immediately, your heart rates up. It's it's tense. And they do that a couple times throughout the show, which I think he plays that really well, that, like, I'm terrified, but I'm also the person in the situation who can figure this out, so I need to, like, keep a level head. Um, you know... And I thought that was probably the part I liked the most. I thought the relationship um, with the, what was she, the house secretary? Or home secretary. Um, so, Se- secretary? Yeah. yeah. It's like the secretary I, I thought that, that I those scenes were also really compelling and their their chemistry, I thought, really uh, came through. The, the things I didn't like is this is a six-episode series, six and a half hours, and I feel like, like they covered so much plot in that time it was almost like too much i felt a little bit confused and like how did we get from here to here in six and a half hours it felt just like we covered a lot of ground um especially in like like the last two episodes after after the this is spoilers at this point now but after there's the the bomb that goes off and kills the, the home secretary i feel like all of a sudden, there are characters I had no idea about who are being introduced and are playing this major role in the plot moving forward. Um, so that would be my biggest gripe about it. Also, I mean, Richard Madden, I thought, was great in this role. Um, I didn't think he was, like, like perfect. I, I thought that, you know, there were there were some things to be desired. I think especially, like, um, sometimes I don't necessarily think I believed his, like, like sadder moments, I think, like almost to to a point it felt like when when he was with his wife i felt like that was real but like some of the stuff with like his friends or his, his old, old army buddies and like his emotional reactions there i was kind of like does that really fit for what's going on maybe i didn't totally understand that part of the story um but overall really a, a great watch i'm glad netflix got it so soon was there anything that you didn't like about this series yeah and no, i think to those points i mean um I think once Julia Montague, the house secretary, once she dies, the dynamic of the show obviously changes because they were, you know, like she was like his foil for the David's foil for the first half of the show. Right. And then I think she also helped kind of like ground the the plot, because as you said, we get a lot of plot in this. And I actually actually really respect the show for not like wasting time with exposition. You know, I think the the location shooting combined with just like not holding your hand really helps the show feel like real but um you know once julia's gone 
the show gets a little more f- uh, frenetic and there is like again these other characters who we totally didn't quite understand their roles especially for uh, american viewers we don't quite understand um the way like the security people and the police people are different you know like th- that that stuff like i guess that was what like was it like fbi and cia difference uh, it, it's kind of unclear right so like the the way the, the various parts of their government is a little unclear for us foreign viewers but i i wouldn't say that's much of a negative it's just you know just a choice they made also to that you, you mentioned richard's madden's you know the, the quieter moments i think um the show consciously did not choose to explore his, uh, f- you know, his thoughts and feelings. You know, I mean, um, they set up early on that he's at odds with Julia in terms of politics, right? You know, he has uh, resentment for her for sending him to Afghanistan as he's, he has PTSD, he's a war veteran, right? But we never really get that. I think that was a really cool setup where he's working for someone he fundamentally disagrees with. You already have the flipped power dynamic of a woman and a man, right? And they just don't really explore that. And, like, yes, he has, like, he, they start, like, using his PTSD against him as the show progresses, but we never really get, like, that conversation. We don't really know what he believes or feels, you know? We just kind of realize that he's out there to uncover the truth and then clear his name, doing both together, you know? So that was a choice they made. Um, you know, I think uh, Jed uh, Mercurio, the showrunner and the writer of the show, um, he is going to meet with Madden, I think, in a few weeks to discuss a season two if they do one. I mean, it's so successful, they'll probably do one, right? So I think, and he's also been very uh, active on Twitter in terms of talking about the show. So I think he's going to see these criticisms and probably take them to heart. But, you know, that was, those are choices they made. I don't think they ultimately ne- uh, negate the show, but they're worth pointing out just because, you know, things could have perhaps been done differently. Um, but I think for a six hour show, um, you know, it kind of reminded me a lot of Collateral, a show we talked about earlier in the year. Carrie Mulligan, another BBC show. And yeah. also, I mean, I think it's kind of obvious, but it's a lot like the beginning of Homeland with Damian Lewis's character, right? And in a good way, you know? And I think it just shows it's got really cool set visuals for a place that's just, it's just London, but it's, I think it's shot cool. And you have these set pieces, the sniper attack, the first 20 minutes of the show, obviously the, the big stuff in the finale, um, that interrogation scene in episode four. There's just really good moments like that that really keep people engaged. But overall, it moves at such a pace that I think it's, you know, it, it's tough to look away. So I was uh, really pleased with it and was a big fan. So I actually would would welcome another season. How about you? Oh, yeah, I definitely see a uh, second season. I thought, you know, there was like a pseudo twist at the end, which I thought was pretty good with the uh, person he saved or he, the suicide bomber at the beginning kind of Nadia. being the one who sells out the plot to kill the secretary just like the whole like he like under her and like blind and came back to like haunt him i thought it was really well done so i would definitely love to see second season of this show let's talk about bond real quick richard madden for bond yay or nay i wouldn't be opposed to it i mean like, again i keep looking at the betting odds i keep looking at the list and it's like in terms of like star power i actually think he's kind of like the perfect pick because he's not a total unknown people recognize him but they don't really like, he's below Tom Hardy and Tom Hiddleston, but he's not totally unknown, you know? So in that sense, I think he's, like, the right profile for the role. And, you know, I think, I mean, between Rob and this role in particular, I think I think he could do it, especially if it was a more of a Daniel Craig-esque one where we kind of get more of, like, a damage bond. But maybe he's not the best pick if you're trying to do, like, suave. debonair, suave bond. I mean, who, who, who would I want instead? That's keep like, who are our options? You know, obviously, we want Idris Elba. It doesn't sound like that's happening. 
Aiden Turner. I like Aiden Turner. Doesn't sound like he's famous enough. You know, it's not gonna be Hilson. It's not gonna be Hardy. Like, and then I think all the other guys got passed over. Was gonna be Jack Rayner. It's gonna be uh, Jack Houston. Like, no, I don't think so. Yeah. So like, who is it? I think he's a decent pick. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I still would love to see Elba. Yeah, I guess I, I'm not really sure who would be a better pick now. I almost want them to nail down a director first, have them write the scripts, and then go after an actor that fits that bond rather than the other way around, getting the bond first and writing around him. Tell ha, Have a good story to tell with Bond and then get the actor that's going to fit for that. And the thing is, this whole conversation is so premature because uh, Bond 25, still untitled, remember they fired Danny Boyle? And then, remember that announcement came from... Uh, Eon, the Bond, the MGM, the Bond people, and Daniel Craig. Like Craig is part of this. He's very heavy-handed in his final final Bond movie, right? So they got they got that locked down. They only pushed it back a few weeks, but that's not coming out till early 2020, unless they commission people to work on the next Bond movie while they're still in production for the the last Craig one. Like, how many movies, how many shows is is Richard Madden going right. to do before he's actually signed on for this? You know, it's so premature. Yeah. But it's fun to talk about, especially when there's nothing else to talk about in the British news. So. <laughs> a show we, we didn't talk about much, but definitely is worth it. David Simon's The Deuce on HBO Season 2. We talked about season, season 1. The show takes a look at sex workers, the sex trade in New York City in the 1970s. And we, we talked about, I think, the, what, the first episode or two at, at the beginning of the season. And Season 1 was, was brilliant. Season 2... I didn't, I didn't think was as good as season one. I think my, my biggest gripe against it is uh, while season one felt a little bit more cohesive to me in terms of uh, other than Vince and what was going on with him, which ended up being tied in at the end. It was all around like the pimps and the different prostitutes um, and the storylines through them and Vince at the end kind of being the puppet for the mob to create this different way of the prostitution um this season there was a lot of different storylines went a lot of different directions and it was almost too much to fit into the nine episodes i mean this was one more episode than last season i felt like there were so many things that didn't really get explored to the extent they could have um the thing about it though is that david simon still is so good at directing and creating these worlds and exploring these relationships that it's still a lot of fun to watch and for a show to kind of leave you wanting more as like the biggest gripe you have against it is pretty good. <laughs> so I would say that, I mean, the deuce is still a, a top notch show, very quality, but season two, I think wasn't the strongest season of the, of the two there have been so far. Only one more season left, but what was your uh, take on season two? Yeah, I, I think I agree with that. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just incredibly well made. Like it does very few things. Not well. You know, watching this, I think there's like l- less payoff this season. Like you meant, you just said it. Like season one, something is achieved. Like the plot really moves by the end, right? And yes, we have advanced in years. Yes, now it's more about porn than really prostitution, right? But I just think like not all the characters were served this way. It's an ensemble show for sure. I mean, Vince is like, I, Vince and Candy are the leads, quote unquote, because they have the most screen time, but they don't f- quote, really feel like the leads all the time, you know? And I think, you know, I, did, I started to notice, like, I felt like Abby in particular was kind of underserved this season. Um, I mean, what she just kind of helped, you know, trying to help the girls, but it just felt like she was way more involved in season one. It just, 
didn't really go anywhere for her this year. Like she kept doing the same thing the whole time, basically, right? You know, and I say that she, it's not growth. It's just like they didn't give her much screen time this time. I thought Gary Carr again was brilliant as CC. Um, he got was a much more vicious, manipulative character this season. You know, I thought he was. We saw a lot more of like the quote, you know, good sides of him in season one, and he got a lot darker this season. And I actually thought they timed his end quite well, actually. Um, as Emily Mead's character is finally, you know, becoming like a quote star. You know, so I, I like that part. That's probably my favorite uh, thing to see. But like, there's a lot of storylines in this. The police storyline doesn't quite go as much there like we get it set up right away and then you kind of know what's happening like you have like the pre-aids gay storyline again could have had more with that it's there and again these none of these storylines are bad but it's just like they're just kind of there the mob stuff we get other mob characters this season could have had more we didn't get it it's okay but you know i actually thought um I thought frankie actually had some better moments this <laughs> yeah, season you know definitely. again i don't think the dual role uh is necessary you know, for the twin brothers that Franco plays, but they do feel like two distinct performances. I did think uh, Frankie had some cool moments this year, especially uh, when he bags the older woman. I thought that was hilarious. That whole I, I was laughing for like five minutes. That was great. I also liked when he like gets the money from the mobster for the like the extra twenty thousand for the uh, was it Red Hot is the name of the movie. Red Hot. And he like yep. pours it over her, and he puts his feet up, and he's like laying back, and they're like Frankie, you got two left shoes on. He's like. Yes, I do. And just like <laughs> totally like owned it. I was like, okay, I, I'm I'm down with Frankie being like somewhat competent, I guess. And yeah. Also, just owning his like stupidity. right. And I I also like the way they brought it in using can using Red Hot. Like again, that brings Frankie in as a producer, right? That brings Pipolo and the mob in, right? As producers, benefactors, right? And we also had a, a made a ton of sense, but we had a moment where uh, Candy is propositioned. You know, in the Me Too era, you got to see, you know, that's what it used to be like. So, so blatant like that, right? And seeing that. Um, so, again, I think the show does a lot of stuff. It's not like a show that's like keen on, like, here's new ideas for TV making, right? It's not like that. Yeah. But it's just telling great stories in incredibly effective worlds in the Simon fashion. And, you know, it's, again, not much bad to say about it. I was still quite a big fan. You know who I think was probably my breakout character was uh, Larry, played by Gabenga Ekanagbi, I believe. Yes. I think I, saw, I think I nailed that. He was really, really good this season. and seeing Arguably him, the best growth, yeah. Yeah, seeing him move from being a, uh, a, a straight pimp in season one into an actor and maybe even a legitimate actor by the end of season two was pretty interesting also his relationship with dorothy who's played by what's her first name so fishburn dominique fishback dominique fishback sorry dominique fishback i thought was really interesting seeing her kind of they, they became more like equals by the end of it, or at least like he respected her more i like that yeah and he he also was at the forefront of most of the conversations about race on the show too so yeah i thought um he really took a step up great character development for him for sure and like that's great to see, but again, it comes at the expense of other characters because there was only so much screen time. It's a big ensemble, but hey, it's a good problem to have. I I really laughed when the uh, photographer was taking his headshots, and he like told him he needed to take a, a picture of him with his pants off, and he like finally laid down with his pants off, and he's like, I wouldn't want to see that thing get angry at me. I was dying laughing. Yeah, the the show really does inject humor really well into this. What do you think of Maggie Gyllenhaal this season? Because Candy is a, a major character in this, but 
probably the most tragic tale in a lot of ways. I mean, I guess like other than like Dorothy, um, who this season really had a, a sad arc. Um, but yeah, Maggie Gyllenhaal and her relationship with her son is really tough to watch at points. Yeah, you just kind of feel like given when this show is taking place, late 70s, could mean the 80s for the final season. It's like you just kind of feel like you know where how it's going to end. You know, it's like you can't really see the the happiest of endings, you know. So that is tough. But I do, I'd really like the storyline. I really like seeing like her take charge and, you know, be a avant-garde filmmaker, independence fuck, you know. That was really cool. I actually thought uh, Harvey Wasserman, David Crumholtz, yeah. ton of weight loss this year's season. Yeah. Um, he's really funny as a character actor, too. So I really like that plot. I thought that was probably the most consistent of them, you know, because it's probably the closest thing we had to a through line. I started bringing characters in, you know. But um, I, I, Maggie Gyllenhaal said before she joined the show that she was not interested in playing a prostitute straight up, you know. She wanted to be a deeper character, and that's part of the reason she's a producer on the show, but also because, you know, there's a lot of growth for Candy, too. So, yeah, I thought she was uh, still quite good. Yeah, I mean, there's not really, I think, too much more to say about it other than, you know, David Simon is quality. Uh, the show is quality. Um, definitely check it out. Why don't we jump to Bohemian Rhapsody? This thing, bit of a monster, dude. Fifty million at the box office opening, second largest musical biopic opening ever, which is, I mean, a pretty specific. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's an ESPN stats and yeah. info tweet. <laughs> you know, Brian Singer. We we talked a little bit about the, the issues he had directing this, um, his unprofessionalism throughout the filming and the conflicts he had with Rami Malek or at least I were reported. This is sitting at 59% on Rotten Tomatoes, but pretty much everything I saw from anyone that went to go see the movie this weekend was that they left very satisfied and really enjoying the movie. Why is there such a, I guess, a low Rotten Tomatoes score, but why, why are critics saying that this isn't good? Because I think you got Queen, you got Rami, you got a director, yeah. like, how could this thing mess? Yeah, no, I, I think the critics are right for all the points they're making. But I also think that A minus cinema score you're seeing from the audience, you know, fanfare, uh, makes sense too. Again, this this was projected to do like thirty million, so way way beat out that projection. <laughs> yeah. because people fucking like Queen. Queen is is crowd pleasing. Queen has hits on hits, and this is a movie that the surviving members of Queen commissioned to you know celebrate the band, and the movie was made with that in mind. So when you watch the movie and you see these set pieces, you hear all the Queen music. That that was licensed out, right? Because then the guys, the Queen dudes made this, Brian May and uh, uh, Roger Taylor. And, you know, I think the movie was made to be like that. But the problem, I think, what the critics see is that it's kind of a movie that just kind of goes, we're going here, we're going here, we're going here, we're going here, we're going here. And... We're not going too high. We're not going too low. We're not going to really explore anything. A lot of stuff's going to be predictable, even if you don't know the story. And then, you know, it's just going to be really showy with set pieces. So I think the critic points make sense. But I still found the movie incredibly entertaining as a big Queen fan. So I'm fine, you know? So I actually think it's it's an interesting story. I mean, it's, it's funny. When you said Queen is just incredibly entertaining, it's just that's what it is. You have Queen, you're playing it really loud. Malik basically embodies Mercury to a T, uh, especially that like the last th- or the third act of the movie when he has the mustache and and the shorter haircut. I was like, damn, he really does look like Freddie Mercury in this role. 
Um, you know, they, they took a lot of liberties with the story. <laughs> they pretty much just like retold the last like 10 years <laughs> or five years, especially, um, which is a bit troubling. But I don't know. It's hard for me to hate this movie. I don't hate it. I think even people that like will say, hey, this wasn't like the best film can still say they're entertained by. It. I don't think there's that's a mutually exclusive thing. It's 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 not so binary to enjoy art. Right. As as we've said before. Part of those critical issues are probably rooted in the fact that initially Sacha Baron Cohen was attached to this film, and this was you know over five years ago, right? And like they wanted to make a hard R-rated, hedonistic as fuck film about Freddie, and you know I mean he's legendary for his drugs and his sex and stuff, right? And we don't really see that. It's kind of sanitized for this film, and his grappling with sexuality it's there, but it's not really that deep. And, you know, it's just, I think those are just the decisions that, you know, stand out when you're watching it with a critical eye. But again, for what it is, I still think it's quite entertaining. Um, I think a big part of that is that it's just doing the biopic biopic things, but because it's like so light, you know, it's just kind of moving at a brisk pace. This happened, we made Killer Queen, we made Fat Bottom Girls, we made Bohemian Rhapsody, <laughs> et cetera. It's like, all right, right, cool, let's just go on the ride. That's really what the movie is about, right? But like you said, the, the yeah. accuracies are funny though, dude. Like, we don't know exactly when he got diagnosed for AIDS, but we're everyone's almost certain that it was a few years after Live Aid. It certainly wasn't brought upon the band right before the performance. They were touring two months prior to Live Aid. Yeah, like, like they had just made an album that they were touring worldwide before Live Aid. It's not like they were broken up or anything. So that whole like thing for dramatic tension, I think, is effective as a, for a filmmaking technique in this case. But wildly inaccurate was probably going to mislead some people. Definitely. You know, it's it's also, I guess I'll tell a funny story, too, and then I'll kind of circle back around. People we were sitting next to in the theater when he, when he started to, uh, when he made out with Paul for the first time at the piano, literally gasped. They had no idea Freddie Mercury was gay. I, I they were like oh, what like uh, Julianne actually burst out laughing at them because we were like what movie did you think you came to see like <laughs> that that reminds me of some tweets I saw this week where someone was like after watching a star is born someone next to me said who is Lady Gaga you know <laughs> it's just like how are you so clueless and especially like going to see Bohemian Rhapsody like I guess that's kind of a power of Queen like Queen is a band that's transcended so much that they have songs like We Will Rock You, We're the Champions, that are so synonymous with sporting events and parties that people don't even know what band it is. They just know the song verbatim anyway, you know? So I guess that leaked out into the film too, which is kind of funny. Well, I think the the Live Aid performance and some of the other, like a couple other scenes from this are really just like great filmmaking. Um, I do think there were some things that didn't really fit so well. Uh, I do want like Rami Malek when he's playing Freddy and he moves into that huge apartment and he's doing the whole like light on light off thing with uh, what was her, her name Mary. I thought that was like Rami Malek playing his character from Papillon to like as Freddie Mercury. It was really strange. And then also like how you like you could tell Brian May and Roger Taylor had their fingers all over like the production of this cuz like at the end when he's like Freddie Freddie Mercury tells him that they have AIDS they go Freddie you're a legend and he goes we're all legends i was like you're a legend fred <laughs> yeah i was like oh man and also it was like 
they pre- they really highlighted the moments when the other members of the band uh had some serious input into a song and how important they were in the production of all the music which is fine but i don't really give a shit about the brian may story or the roger taylor story i want to know freddie Mercury. exactly I, th- I think queen is an important band because all four of them wrote songs and wrote hit songs like it's not like that wasn't true but no one is interested in the queen story for those dudes as you just said we're there for freddie and the fact that like more than once it's like we're having this creative argument in the studio oh shit john deacon just played the riff to another one bites the dust arguments (laughs) over let's make a hit you know it's just like it's just incredibly unbelievable um but you know you just go with it you have a good time (laughs) like also like another thing that's like so obvious is an unrecognizable mike myers plays this like composite executive character who's apparently based off of an executive who was quite supportive of the band, but only slightly disliked Bohemian Rhapsody. So that's way hammed up for the film. But he's just like, you know, you'll never be a success in this town. Bohemian Rhapsody is not a hit. It's not the single. It's something like the car song, right? And it's just like, God, like we know it's going to happen. And also, why have that scene when we fucking know it's Queen? Jesus Christ, they sold like 500 million records or whatever. Did you know that that was Michael Myers? No idea. There, There was one moment when he said something like, he's like, no one's going to listen to this. Uh, like, and I'm, this is my horrible impression, but it was just like Fat Bastard. And I was like, is that Mike Myers? And I was like, there's no way that's Mike Myers. And then when Julianne told me it was, I was blown away. Um, you know, the thing about this movie is, I think that out of a lot of the movies I've seen recently, it's probably one that I would love to rewatch the most just because it is an entertaining movie and it's just really fun. And if you like Queen, like who, which who doesn't like Queen, you're going to enjoy it. Do you think Malik's performance in this is nomination worthy? Worthy? Yes, I think it's definitely worthy. I think they made an important choice to not have him try and sing. Like yes. yes. First of all, how many good actors could even attempt that mimicry? Probably very few. If Zero. Any, right? But no one wants to hear someone do mediocre, perhaps decent covers of Queen. Right. And it's such a legendary vocalist, right? So smart call. You know, I think we can look at examples like Walk the Line, for example. Great film. Joaquin Phoenix was singing competently as Johnny Cash, right? But that was a choice they made. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have other films like La La Land, for example. Emma Stone, Ryan Gosling, not the best singers. Not bad, but not the best. Even uh, Beauty and the Beast, Emma Watson as Belle. Not the best. You know, if you dubbed her, eh, it probably would have been better. But I think they made an important choice with this. And we will see soon um, how this choice works because next year, I believe in May, end of May, uh, the director of this film who finished the film for Singer, what's his name, uh, Fleischer? Yeah. Ruben yeah. Fleischer, right? Uh, he is make he made a Rocket Man, the Elton John biopic with Taron Egerton. And Taron Egerton sung the songs. And I like Taron Egerton. I do not know anything about his singing voice. And Elton John is uh, no cakewalk for that. So we will see how that decision works out. But Rami, I think, is definitely awards-worthy, but I was looking at the race. This is a tough race. I don't know if it's going to crack, but do you think he's awards-worthy, considering he was dubbed, considering he was mimicking someone to such a degree? The thing is, like, so you talk about, like, The Doors, um, you know, the the outpick about Jim Morrison. Um, I'm just going to have to power through these sirens. I don't know what the hell is going on in my blog. <laughs> okay. I think I think the FBI is coming to knock my door down. It's a bodyguard season two. <laughs> um, 
but like he really he really becomes Jim Morrison that, and he sings. You know, Johnny Cash. He's uh, it's Walking Phoenix. He becomes Johnny Cash. No one can sing like Freddie Mercury. Like even watching that live performance at the end that they put during the credits, it didn't even look like Freddie Mercury's. Like his own voice is coming out of him. That's like how good his voice is. So I don't I don't really knock him too much. He really becomes him in terms of like his mannerisms and the way he like stalks. And I think for that, that's incredibly impressive. And I think it's definitely worthy. But like you said, the race is really really tight. And I think the only lock we have right now is Bradley Cooper. Like that's the only one we know is gonna definitely be there. Gosling is probably on the fringe. Just I feel like First Man didn't get as much steam as people thought it would. Um, I'm sure Viggo Mortensen will probably get in there for Green Book. That looks really good. I think Christian Bale after Vice comes out is gonna be up there. Robert Redford. Yeah. I mean, I would Final like that. Movie. He's in the he's in the mix at least, you know. Also, Ethan Hawke for First Reformed uh, is right there. Lucas Hedges for Boy Erased is right Timothy there. Chalamet. I'm not sure how they're doing Vigo Vigo and Mahershala for Green Green uh, Green Book, but one of them at least is probably there. Um, that's a lot of guys. It's a, it's a it's, there's only five nominations, so Rami feels like kind of like the Golden Globes likes him. He got two noms and a win from uh, for Robot for them, right? So maybe if the Globes nominate him, that'll help. But um, he'll probably just miss, which is disappointing. But good win for him regardless. I'm really happy. Yeah, such a different role than he's played. You know, you think about Elliot and Mr. Robot, his role in the Pacific, uh, Papillon. I mean, he has always placed these kind of weirdos who are very, like, just within themselves. And this was something where he was got to be, overall, to Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, if you're gonna like it. It's gonna be fun. You don't need to take it that seriously. It's okay. Uh, why don't we talk about what what we'll be talking about next week? Now, because well, yeah. shit, <laughs> it's a lot of stuff, man. In terms of movies, I saw Wildlife. If you see Wildlife by you, we'll talk about that. Carrie Mullen's really good in it. Uh, Boy Erased with Lucas Hedges, I think, will be out by us finally. We'll probably talk about that. Um, and there's other movies in small release right now, like Burning, Private War, both really well liked. So we're we're in we're in movie season right now so we'll talk about some of that and also one thing we're gonna talk about them but in wide release girl in the spider's web uh claire foy season continuing uh, overlord from bad robot is out which is getting pretty good reviews television wise we'll be talking about homecoming the amazon prime series with julia roberts papa cannavale uh we started it but we had a packed show we'd like to just see it all then talk about it like we just did with bodyguard so stay tuned for that and then it's a fuck ton of music man I don't know which ones we're going to talk about yet, but there's a lot of stuff. Muse, Smino, Little Dragon, Posthumous Little Peep album, The Underachievers, Trippy Red, Cupcake, a Brain Feeder, 36-track label compilation. It's a lot of stuff. So we'll talk about some of that. I'm sure some of it will be good. We'll, we'll <laughs> be talking about a lot next week, I have a feeling. So stay tuned. Oh, I forgot as well. One other thing. Outlaw King, Chris Pine's... Braveheart movie about Robert the Bruce, directed by David McKenzie, who directed Hell or High Water, is out on Netflix this Friday. And another reviews are somewhat middling, but it looks like it's heavy on the set pieces, and it's got a big cast, and I fucking like Braveheart despite its flaws, so I'm gonna see that. So maybe we'll talk about that too. But a lot of a lot of content. So plenty a lot of content. Um, so hit that subscribe button on all platforms. Follow us at Nostalgia Pod on Twitter, at Martin Swagger, and at Sheeting World Peace. 
And most importantly, go vote tomorrow. We love you. See you next week. Yeah.